Continuing the Great Escape, which is our walk through the book of Exodus, uh, to give us a catch up on where we were last week. Um, last week on our message titled, The Presence of God, the Lord revealed himself in a supernatural storm that rested on the top of the Mount of Mount Sinai. The people were given access to God's word and instructed to maintain the boundaries God had set for them by restraining their flesh and reverencing God. As believers, we saw how the same message applied to us and our Christian lives today as we seek to serve the Lord. This week, we're going to actually look at a little bit closer as God delivers or begins to deliver the law of, the law of morality to the human, uh, human race. And this message today is titled, The Commandments of God. And let's pray. Lord, we love you. And God, I thank you for this opportunity to bring the word of God. And Lord, I know that you have spoken to me. And I'm asking you, Lord, that you would now speak through me. Uh, God, that my words that I would share today would not be the ones that I would choose. God, that be the very ones that the Spirit of God would place upon my tongue. And that, Lord, uh, this not be a human message. God, this be straight from you. God, I pray that you'll do a great and mighty work in us, Lord, in me. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Now, what, to give you a little bit of a preface of where we're going to be, last time when we finished up, Moses and Aaron had both been called to the top of the mountain. So we know the people were all standing back behind the barriers. Moses and Aaron up at the top of the mountain, okay? Verse number one, it says, And God spake all these words, saying, okay? The question we have to ask ourselves is, when he says this, who is he speaking to specifically, okay? Is he specific, specifically talking to Moses and Aaron because they're at the top of the mountain? Or is it possible he's speaking to everyone? So let's investigate a little bit and find out. Okay? As we look down, if we'll get a little bit further down in verses 18 through 22, what you're going to see there is the people are actually going to go to Moses and they're going to say, look, because of our fear of God and being overwhelmed by the situation of what we're seeing, they actually ask him to kind of be an emissary for them or be a spokesman for them. They're like, you go talk to God and then come back and talk to us. So that gives us a little bit of an indicator that this is potentially talking to everyone. Okay. Now, there's also a pattern in scripture as well. What will happen is, what you'll see is anytime Moses is being spoken to by God and it's on a one-on-one, -on -one, the Bible tells us that. It'll say, the Lord spoke unto Moses, or the, led, the Lord said unto Moses, okay? From verses 3-4, where he speaks to him out of the burning bush, to up to 19-21, which is right before this, 30 different times when God speaks to Moses directly, it tells us that he spoke directly to him, again pointing to the fact that this is probably speaking to the whole crowd. Then also, additionally, in Deuteronomy 5-4, what happens in Deuteronomy 5-4 is Moses is actually recounting the story that's taking place at Late Sinai. And this is what he says when he speaks to the people. He said, the Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. So based upon those three principles, we can pretty much be assured that this voice is coming out of heaven and all the people are receiving it, okay? And there's a relevance to that and there's a, there's a reason why that's important, okay? The very, very important reason for them to fit the fact that they're hearing it with their own ears, okay? Very, very, very important point. First reason. He's giving the people access to his exact words because they're hearing it with their own ears, hearing exactly word for word what God had for them. Number two, he's making sure that his presence and his absolute authority are accompanying the message. So as this message comes forward, it's authoritative and it's known to be because of the presence of God. It's got that accompanying, accompaniment of the message. Number three, he is removing a human element from his message, right? He's avoiding any possible confusion or corruption that could actually take place in this message. So what's happened is he's taking the most effective, 
the maximum clarity on making sure what he's going to share with them is as, as he's cutting out all the details, anything that could possibly peripherally mess it up. He wants them to hear exactly what's going on. Okay. So if we think about that, can we think of another instance where God used a similar tactic because he wanted to get his word directly to people? where he wanted to make sure that there was no confusion and ensure that the people got the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the, the truth. How about the, how about the Bible, right? Where he gave it to us directly. God has given us his, his exact words in the supernaturally preserved word of God. He has maintained its authority and origin throughout time to validate its message. By creating the Bible, God gave the world the opportunity to hear directly from him. In making his word available, it gives the world a source of absolute truth. So we can see in the picture of the Ten Commandments, we can see a picture of the Word of God in this commandment. They will be given, it will be given directly from the very mouth of God. Now this incredible access to God's accurate Word is so important because it's about establishing truth, truth and authority. Reason why that's important, guess what? Without an absolute truth, there can be no solid ground to stand upon. Because everything is up to interpretation at that point in time, right? If someone says, this is the way I see the world, and I want you to see the world the same way, whether it matches reality or not, that's what's going on in our culture as we speak, right? There are people who go, I believe that I'm this, you know? A 40-year-old man says, well, I'm a 7-year-old girl. And we're supposed to go, okay, you're a 7-year-old girl. Great, little sweetie, how are you? The reality is it's a 40-year-old man, right? This was, on, this, was, this was national news. This man has three kids. He's 40 years old, and he decided he wanted to be seven years old. And guess what? A family adopted him, and he lives with another seven-year-old little girl who's his twin sister. That's a reality in our world. So what's happened is, and now that's confusion, right? We know that God is not the author of confusion. We know that our world is very confused right now. It's filled with sin and all kinds of unrighteousness. But unfortunately, if there's not an exact word of God, if there's not an absolute truth to stand upon, then anything goes. So God knew that about our culture. That's why he's establishing this truth, okay? Very, very important for us to understand. Verse number two, he says this, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Pay attention to that word bondage. The Lord identifies himself to ensure that there is no doubt amongst the people who it is that's speaking to them. He also reminds them of where they've come from and from whose hand delivered them from bondage. Bondage, that's an important word for us to remember. Remember, okay, that Egypt is a picture of humanity's bondage to sin. When we go back to the book of Exodus and we look at that captivity of slavery, the bondage that they were under in Egypt, that is a picture of humanity's bondage to sin. Okay? Then Pharaoh, who is a picture of Satan, guess what? He was the taskmaster over the bondage that they were under. So you and I are under the bondage of sin, and guess what? We have a taskmaster, Satan, who keeps us under control, who's trying to constantly push us down and draw us into our, our own iniquities and beat us up with what we're, where we come from. Then we've got Jesus Christ, and we've got Moses, who's a picture of Jesus bringing the Israelites, a picture of us, out of Egypt. So there's all these pictures that are designed inside of this. And what it does, it sounds like this. Notice that while the, while the children of Israel are under bondage, that the law was not given to them. Okay? It was not given to them at that time. And it's a very important reason. Because guess what? They were under bondage. They didn't have control of themselves. They couldn't make their own choices. In Ephesians 2, 2, it says this. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. Okay? Remember, the world is a picture of Egypt. 
right? So he says, in time past, talking about us, this is, this is Paul addressing us, he says, in time past, you walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to sinful nature, according to the prince of the power of the air, prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, which is a picture of Pharaoh, right? We see these pictures in parallel. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. There are lost people in this world that follow that course. That's what they were set upon. And he's saying, look, that's where you used to be. You used to be set upon that course. Your nature was to do wrong. You had no natural inclination to do right. You, don't have the, you didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help you to be drawn to live for God. As believers, we were brought out of bondage of our sin by our Savior. Galatians 5, 1 says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Be not entangled, look at this, again, with the yoke of bondage. He's telling you, as a believer, you can be drawn right back into the same bondage. How are we living our lives? What are the choices that we're making? Are we redeeming ourselves before God? Are we submitting to him? Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Pharaoh, our taskmaster, he's trying to destroy us. Satan wants to bring us to our knees and destroy us. And what happens is we open the door wide open because we pour all this garbage into us and we don't feed ourselves with the word of God and we're so vulnerable. And then we understand, we don't understand why it has such a, just a hold on us and that we can't break free. And he says, we're in, in time past, back in that Ephesians 2, in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You walked on that course. That's who you were. That's what you grew up in. And that nature is still inside. Your flesh still wants those things. The spirit that now worketh in, that now worketh in you right? That now worketh in the children of obedience. But we have a different spirit that works within us, man. One of love. I'm supposed to love my neighbor instead of hate them. It's not Hammeronomy's code, but all code about all, you know, if, you know an ear, eye for an eye and a, uh, what is it? Tooth for a tooth. There you go. It's amazing, man. That thing's lasted a long time, but that's another, another moral code. That's not the one we're going to follow, right? Now that they're free and able to make their own choices, God is offering them an opportunity to choose. To choose. It won't be about following rules, okay? It's going to be about following him. That's the key. If you live your life about following rules, you won't last in that. Because eventually it's just your will is going to fail. I'm going to do right for a certain amount of time because I know I'm supposed to. But if it's about following him, it's a whole different story. Because when you follow him, righteousness comes out. If a Christian is going to, be, is going to find fulfillment in the word of God, we must have this mindset. Not about following rules, about following him. We surrender our hearts not out of conformity or fear, but out of love and gratitude. It's when we get a hold of this truth that our relationship with God will actually blossom. And what's awesome about it when it does, and you get that heart for God, and you live for Him and not for yourself, and you're not about following rules, but you're about following Him, what happens is His love starts to all those hidden corners of your heart that are dark. That love starts to pour in there. Does it not? Amen. It just pours in. And all those places that were broken start to solidify. And all those places that were so scary and you never want to face them, suddenly God gives you a confidence because he says, you know what? In those dark places that you don't want to go, I'm with you. I will hold your hand. And in those dark depths that scare you to death, I'm with you. I'll hold you tight. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He uses the word shadow for a reason because it's dark. He says, when you go into those dark places, I'm right with you. Don't be scared. Because guess what? I've already won the victory. 
Let's be willing to look within ourselves. At this moment, the almighty, sovereign, righteous God of the universe is about to give his holy law to humanity. The only way that a moral law can be established is from a purely moral and righteous source. Because guess what? An unrighteous source cannot create an unbiased law. How could an immoral lawgiver create a moral law? It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. The law God is going to give us is a reflection of his very nature and his character. And guess what his nature and character are? Perfect and righteous and holy. Romans 7.12 says this, Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. 1 Peter 1.15 and 16 says this, But as he which hath called you to sin, called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So understanding the nature of God and his expectations for humanity, let's look at how he introduces this truth to his wayward people. Because guess what? They clearly need direction. We know that without a doubt. They've got to be given some directions for moving forward. In preparation for delivering his historic message, God sets the stage and establishes the context. He begins by establishing who he is, right? Why he deserves their respect. Also letting them know and, and helping them to understand the redemption of where it is they've come from and what they've been brought from. As believers, sometimes you and I need to take a trip down memory lane and remember who we were before, right? If you're recently saved, man, you can go, hey, I know who I was. But it's been 10 years, it's been 15 years, it's been 30 years, it's been 40 years. Sometimes we forget who we were. And we think we've been this righteous person all of our life. And in reality, we weren't. And if we go back and think about not to glory in our tribulations, not to celebrate our bad times or our sinful nature, but to recognize how far God has redeemed us and what he's done in our lives. And it, what it does is it allows us to change our perspective. It allows us to realize that, you know what, instead of singing a song and just going, they're just words, man. I've been saved a long time. I've sung the same song a thousand times. What if it sinks into our heart because we remember what it is, who it is we're singing about and what he's done for us? Not taking it for granted, not just thinking that we deserve it. So God's doing a great and mighty work in us. He's doing a great and mighty work here. This is all about preparation. This historic message is going to be, he's setting the stage and the context of what's going to happen. He establishes who he is. He talks about who they are, where they've come from. And bottom line is, some of us, if we look at our lives and we think about where we were, some of us, we go, you know what, it's not that big, it wasn't that big of a change. I wasn't that bad of a person. And I'm doing better. I'm doing good now. But you know what? It wasn't that dramatic. There's others of us. And it was a big change. It was dramatic. A dramatic change. And when we think about God, man, we want to sing redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. God, you're so good. And when we think about it, we may fall to our knees and just lift our hands up and say, God, you've been so good to me. And I don't deserve anything I've received. I love you. Thank you for who you are, right? And it's a matter of us helping. Help us to think that way. Praise God for that. Psalm 106, 1 and 2 says this. Praise ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praises? He says, look, even if you could remember every good thing in your life, the hidden blessings and the, and the obvious blessings, nobody can remember all the things that God's actually doing for us, all those little things, things we don't even see, accidents we should have been into, altercations, things where he stepped in and changed things. We can look back in our lives and go, man, I could have died here. Miraculously, I don't know what happened here. You're at a gas station and somebody pulls a gun and puts it to your head. Kimberly was in that situation. And he was going to kill her. And God gave her a miraculous understanding. And you know what? She felt his presence in the moment. And God delivered her. 
And we can all go through this room and think of instance after instance after instance after instance after instance where God intervened. And yet we sit and sing a song and we don't even care about what we're saying when he stepped in and saved our lives. If it was a person that you saw every week, you'd be like, man, I remember that day when you saved me. Remember that day when you saved me. But God doesn't get that kind of respect. And I don't know why. But he sure deserves it. He's done a whole lot more than any person could ever do for us. Amen. That's for sure. What this verse is telling us is that we should be recognizing God's greatness and provision in our lives and ever praising him for it, right? In doing so, we keep our proper perspective. We keep him where he should be. So our compassionate, loving, holy, and righteous God is going to establish the moral law for humanity in the form of the Ten Commandments. Not as simply a guideline for life, but as a mirror. A mirror when put up against a human life that reflects the iniquity in that life. It shows where we've fallen short. We can look into the Ten Commandments. We can look into God's holy standard, and we can see where we miss the mark. Romans 3, verses 19 through 20 says this. It says, now we know what, what, it says, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, those that are trying to keep the law. And it says, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world, that, and it says, check this out, and all the world may become guilty before God. What that means is he's saying, look, that the Ten Commandments, as these are given, not for you to live by, but for you when you look into them to realize the guilt of your life. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. No one's going to be able to do it because nobody can keep the law. It says, justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. It is designed to reveal the sin. The law was not given with the expectation that we would keep it. Romans 3.10 says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Knowing that humanity had this incap was incapable of keeping the law, God created it to reveal their dire need of a Savior. Right? It's a tool being used. We had to do the... Uh, now, what happens here? Now, understand, for the Savior, right? The Savior had to be somebody very, very specific and extremely unusual, an impossibility, in fact. The Savior had to be a person who could keep the law, who would never sin. No human can do that. We're all infinitely guilty of breaking the laws of God. Hebrews 14, or Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He understands our pains. He understands who we are. He lived on this earth. He experienced things that we experienced. He knows what it's feel, it likes to feel lost and all those things. So this is here, but was in all points tempted like as we are. What does the last sign say? Yet without sin. He had to be perfect, sinless, and righteous. So the law that's getting ready to be received here is being given in order to one day provide an avenue to redeem the world. God is playing the long game. He always plays the long game. This is 1,470 years before Jesus will die on the cross. 1,470 years. Our country's not even, country's not, whatever, we're not even 300 years old. 1,470 years in the future, God's given this law to reveal to man its need of a Savior, to show it that it cannot meet the law, and then bring in Jesus Christ because he will be the Redeemer of the world with that perfect, sinless blood. How awesome is that? 
Love God. He's so awesome. I'm just telling you. The more I study, the more I understand God, the more I just think he's just, I'm just like, dude, you rock. Anyway. It's not in my message. I'm just doing that. Um, let's listen to what God says here as he starts. This is going to be the first, thing, the first of the commandments. Okay, he says, verse number three. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay? As we've discussed in the past, gods, this word gods does not necessarily mean deities or false gods. It can certainly mean those things. But what it is actually talking about, it's talking about any person, anything, any animal, any creature that's placed in a reverential space above God. Okay? The key word in this phrase, he says, is before. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay? So nothing else in this world should have our hearts like God does. Do I love my wife? I absolutely do. Am I on this planet? She's my number one priority. Amen. Or anything else. But God's first. Amen. I love him more than I love her. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Because if I don't love God first and I love her more, I'm actually hurting my wife. I'm hurting my family. I'm hurting this church. God's got to be my priority, and he's got to be our priority. We've got to constantly work against the fact that there's so many things trying to get in the way. Galatians 5, 19 through 20 explains that idolatry is actually a work of the flesh. Okay? Now, what could this idolatry be? I made a list of a couple things. You'll probably think of a lot more stuff than I did. I'm just not that good at this, but my son helped me as well. We were just sitting there, and I was like, what about those things that people worship, things that get above God? Money. Right? The Bible talks about the love of money. It's not the money itself. It's the love of it. It's the priority that it gets in your life. Money is nothing more than a tool, just like anything else. But it's all a matter of how we reverence it. Fame, right? Some people spend their lives trying to get recognition. You know, they put something on Facebook, and they're constantly checking, 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 checking. It's my most likes ever. Okay, what did I do in this one so I can do it next time? I want to make sure that, you know, how did I post it? What did I say? How did I do it, right? And we get so focused on that fame that it becomes something, it becomes something we live for. Sports, holy moly. Talk about people, something to worship. You go to some people's house, and they have an altar in their house. I'm telling you, man. I mean, you go there, and it's like, I've seen people on TV. There was a guy that was a Chicago Cubs fan. His entire basement is, oh, you're like, I didn't know they made that much stuff for the Chicago Cubs. But, dude, I'm telling you, he's got everything you possibly find, display cases, all this kind of stuff like that. And that's where he spends all of his time, and it's where he's total. It's what his conversation all the time is talking about that. You can have, tell what people's, where people's hearts are about what their conversations are about. Material possessions, whatever that may be. It could be our family. Are we supposed to love our family? Absolutely. But should our family be our priority over God? No. No. Should not be. Hobbies, entertainment, and the hardest one, ourselves. We become a God because we worship ourselves. Hebrews 12, verse 28 says this, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, talking about heaven, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably. Notice this, to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So if our service is to be acceptable, it must be in reverence and in godly fear. Matthew 22, 37 says this, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, God should be the top priority of our lives. Then it should be our family. Then it should be our careers and so on. There should be a system where God is always the number one and our family is always number two, career being third, and everything from then on. Now, I quote this verse all the time. It's Mar Matthew 6.33, you know. See, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. 
It, it fits so perfectly there. He goes, look, put me in the top spot and watch how the order of your life will fall into place. Just watch. And what happens is we hear that and you go, man, that makes good sense. That's a promise. That's not a suggestion. He's literally telling you, do this. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And it doesn't say, and maybe these things will be. It says, and all these things shall be added unto you. Shall be added. That means he's promising it. And most of us don't do it. God constantly fluctuates where he is. Some days he's up here and other days he's down here. And it's this constant flip-flop. And then we go, well, you know what? God's not providing for me. He's not meeting my needs. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. But we're unfaithful. God's saying, be faithful and watch what happens. Watch what happens. Verse number four. It says, and thou shalt not, it says, thou shalt not take or shall not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. This is the second commandment. So Paul reveals a little bit more of what the understanding is and what the reasoning is behind this concept of creating these false images. Romans 1 verses 20 through 23 says this, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Okay? He's saying, look, when you look around you in the world, in the creation of the world, it's clearly evident that God is there, being understood by the things that are made. It says, look, even the people that are here, we were made by God. We understand these things. We can see that we were created by God. There's all this amazing proof all around us. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. No one can say they don't believe God exists because there's no proof. There's proof all around them. By the fact that they cut their hand and it heals, there's proof of God right there. The fact that you can reproduce, that's proof of God. The fact that you can think, that you can move, that you can breathe, that, that gravity exists, that the moon is exactly the right distance to control the tides and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the sun's just far enough enough to keep us warm but not burn us up. All these things are not by accident. There's proof all around us. Verse number 21 says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, right? They started believing their own press, and in doing so, they become fools to God, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into, look, notice this word, an image, made like to corruptible man, made in the shape of a man, to, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. What happens is they start creating idols, and they started worshiping these things as if they were God. Verse 25 says this, Who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is back in Paul's day. Guess what? Idolatry is, <laughs> it is strong as it's ever been in our world today. I've got some examples I want to show you. We're going to throw them up on the screen. Okay. So idolatry today. Who can tell me who that is? Buddha, right? They got the Buddha belly. You're supposed to rub his belly and get luck. And you know what's amazing? We were, we were on a trip, and I was watching people. They had this big statue, and all these people walking by. Rubbing his belly, rubbing his belly, rubbing his belly. Can't hurt, can't hurt. Man, that's a pagan. That's a demonic god. Don't be touching that. Don't be worshiping this thing. Look at the next one. This is Ganesh. This is a Hindu god. When I was in India, this thing is all over the place. But actually in India, they have over 33 million gods, they said. That's what they estimated it to be. I was in a place that was called Chennai. And in Chennai, we went down to this place where they had all these temples. I mean, I'm talking, these temp there was probably 50 of these temples. Some of them were 300 feet high. And what's amazing is everyone literally is dirt streets, dirt poor, people dying all around you, horrible. And as you walk and you're approaching these things, all of a sudden you start walking onto ceramic tile. I'm talking dirt, 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 dogs, death, stench, uh, it's horrible. 
and you walk into this place and all of a sudden it transitions into tile. And the next thing you know, you're walking up on this beautiful hand-painted tile and there's millions of them. And in the center of these things are these gigantic temples. And on the outside of the temples, there's shelves all the way around them. And it goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And it's all little statues of different gods. And every temple, they're covered. I'm talking there are thousands and thousands. And they're hand-painted and they're gilded in gold. And when you walk into the temple, guess what you see on the ground? Rotting food. The gifts to the gods. And the people will make their very best food. Their very best that they have. And they bring it and they set it in this place. And it rots and gets eaten by bugs and by rats. And you smell death. And the people are starving to death in the streets. And there's thousands of pounds of food rotting for gods that are out of hell. Pagan beliefs. But guess what? That's alive today in India. Worshipping idols. Look at the next one. Mary. That's an idol. That's an idol. They're worshiping a statue of a woman, and they reverence it. I'm talking kiss these statues, love these statues, light candles and put them all around it, and worship these things. Worship these things. Notice what it said right there, right? It says, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. That means make anything physical or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. There shall be no physical object that you're going to worship, right? Check this out. Look at the next one. Man, do people worship things like this? Yeah, posters on their wall, screensavers on their computers. And man, that's just, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just. And if there was an avenue to get that and they had to miss church, dude, I guarantee you they ain't going to be in church. I'm going to pick up my Lamborghini, baby. Woo, you can hear it when I drive up. Wom, wom. <laughs> right? Right? Look at our next one. Boom. Oh, snap, that hurts. <laughs> That hurts. Oh, my goodness. You're like, oh, my goodness. What? This is an idol? Holy moly. Yeah, it is. Can the devil use this to distract you? Yes. Holy cow. Think of all the technology that exists today for sin. Woo. Hook up with anybody you want to anywhere around the world. Talk to anybody you want to. See anything you want to see. Dangerous thing. It's an object. But guess what? We have a temple beside our bed, right? First thing you look at in the morning. Last thing you look at before you go to bed, an idol, an idol, right? So we think about this idolatry, and we go, ah, it's not us, but guess what? It is, and let's look at the last one. Jesus. Man, that's an idol. That's Jesus. But that's an idol. It talks about making an image of anything on the earth. That's showing him on the cross, right? And I know some of you guys, well, you have a cross up there. Well, guess what? It's empty. That's the whole point. This is not, I'm not going to worship this. This is a piece of wood. But what this is, this is a reminder to let me know that the cross is empty because my Father sits with the Son in heaven. Right? And so it's not, we never worship this. This is not a, a gateway to God. This is a reminder to help me to realize the fact that I am worshiping the Spirit of God. I am worshiping Him and Him alone. And there's nothing on this earth that deserves my worship in any way, shape, or form. And it's not a conduit to God. It's not a man that I'm going to go talk to who's going to receive my, my sins and give me forgiveness. Those things are straight out of hell. 
I'm telling you, the truth is that God is, God is a spirit. We are to love him as we should love him in spirit and in truth. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says this. If ye then be risen with Christ, meaning born again, seek those things which are above, which where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. He's referring to idolatry right there. Our worship should be directed directly to God. John 4, 4, 4.24 says this, God is a spirit, and they that worship him, notice this word, must, must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not a thing. It's God in heaven. Our worship is to God and God alone. Verse 5 says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Okay? We're going to look at just the first part of that verse. That thou shalt not bow thyself down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And there's a pastor by the name of Alan, uh, Alan Redpath, who was a 20th century pastor, and he wrote this. He nails it. I'm going to read you a quote from him. He said this, God's jealousy is love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival, not because he is selfish and wants us all for himself, but because he knows that upon that loyalty to him depends our very moral life. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. Man, that's it. Not jealous of us, jealous for us. And then as this verse continues, we see something here. It's kind of frightening, man. It sounds like God's going to punish the children for the sins of the adults, for the sins of the parents. That's what it sounds like. Look what it says. And it says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Okay? Now, what this is actually saying, I want you to pay attention. The important part of this verse is this, where it says, them that hate me. James 4, 4 says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God, okay? So if you're not the friend, then you're the enemy. So what happens from God's perspective is those that don't love him, guess what? They hate him. That's what he's saying. If you don't love me, then you hate me. And he's talking about that. But he, says, he says, of them that hate me. And he says, bottom line is, this, what the Lord is saying here is the same unbelief right? The same rebellion, if it continues in these next generations, the exact same punishment, the exact same penalty is going to be held to them. The same righteous standard is going to go from generation to generation to generation. Notice the next verse. He says this in verse 6, and showing mercy upon the, uh, unto, the, unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Showing mercy unto, unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. In John 14, Jesus said this, if ye love me, keep my commandments. So what we see here is that God will reward those who choose to follow him at the same time, hold those that will not follow him accountable with the same level of punishment, no matter who they are and no matter when they lived, same unbelief, same punishment. Though these two commandments along with the eight to follow are being given specifically to the Israelites, I want you to know that they apply to all humanity, all of us. God is establishing the moral law of humanity. Now, the Ten Commandments are organized into two different groups. The first are focusing upon our relationship with God. The last eight, or the last six, they're about our relationship with one another. That's where the break takes place. God's purpose in giving the law of Moses was not simply to give guidelines for living, but in actuality to give the world a measuring stick for our rebellion. Without a way of recognizing that we've, gone, that we've done wrong, we cannot stand accountable. If you don't know you've done something wrong, how can you be guilty of it? That standard is set for that purpose. 
It's because of his love for us that he helps us realize the error of our ways so that we can be restored back to him. Today we saw that God should sit on the throne of our hearts. He should be number one. He should be reverenced for who he is. And this sounds easy to do, man. Oh, of course I want to put God first. But you got to remember, we live in our flesh. And we want to fulfill ourselves. And we have desires. And we're important. The Bible says we're supposed to die to ourselves. We're supposed to mortify our flesh. And guess what? And on top of that, not only are we fighting our flesh, but then we have an enemy who's kind of constantly, constantly trying to divide us or separate us from God. Always trying to find a way to attack us. So you and I, guess what? We're going to wrestle with idolatry every day. And sometimes that idolatry is just this flesh that we're worshiping. Now, it doesn't get any clearer than this. First Corinthians 10, 14, he says this, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Run from idolatry. Get away from it. Run in fear of it because it is destruction. Everything we've heard today and we'll hear in the weeks to come is all about God calling us to godly living. That's what he's trying to do. Just live for me. Live your lives not for the purpose of self, but for the, surf for the purpose of glory to God. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we love God? Do we really? Do we really love God? We have to search our own hearts, right? We don't know. I, can't, I don't know. I can't speak for you. If the answer is yes, let's commit our hearts and our minds to keeping the commandments of God. It's simple. Just a matter of choice. Who will we follow, ourselves or him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for our message, God. I know it was kind of a tough one, uh, but Lord, I'm thankful for the way that you spoke to my heart through it, God. I know it was uh, uh, many revelations in that scripture for me. And uh, God, I pray that uh, today you use what we heard, uh, Lord, to help us to become a little bit more, a little bit closer the children of God that you intend for us to be, God. Thank you for the moral law that directs to us and points to us, uh, our failures. And God, thank you so much for a Savior who came perfect and having never committed a sin and not breaking the law, paid the penalty of, for everyone and was horrifically treated, abused, and murdered for things that he did not do. Thank you for that love for us and help us never lose sight of that. God, you are so good so beautiful, so righteous, so perfect, and we are so failed and so flawed, yet you love us. And God, then you call us to do your will and your work on this earth, and many of us slough it off. We don't take responsibility, or we complain about what you ask of us. We're ungrateful, God, and I'm sorry. I pray that you help us, Lord, to be a little bit more understanding of who it is we're to be. Thank you for all the work you've done in our lives with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I don't, I hear everything you're saying, and I agree with what you're saying. But if I were to search my heart today, and if you were to ask me this question, and the question is this, someone asked it to me 18 years ago. They said, if you were to take your last breath today, if this is your last day on earth, are you 100% certain you would open your eyes in the presence of God, or are you afraid? And I can tell you, for the truth, I was afraid. Because I believed in God. But that's not good enough. I believe the Bible, but that's not good enough. I didn't know anything about it. I believe that, that God could do something great in my life, but I knew nothing of him, and I had no personal relationship with him. 
And what was so awesome is that man took a time and he shared with me that God loved me right where I was, right in my brokenness, right in my mistakes, right in the midst of all of my failures. God loved me in spite of my failures. And he loved me there. And he said, you know what? God loves you, David, and he's willing to receive you exactly as you are, as broken as you are. Because he understands what your sin is. He's watched you live this life. He's watched you make those choices. He's watched you hurt those people. He's watched those things that you've done that you regret. But you know what? Through all of that, he loved you. And he made a way through Jesus Christ for you to receive the greatest gift, which is salvation. You're no better, no worse than anybody else. But he offers it to you. And I made a choice that night, August 11, 2001, to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. And he changed my forever, my eternity. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, I don't have that. I don't know for sure. If you're online, if you're in the overflow room, wherever you are, you have an opportunity to receive the greatest gift ever offered to this planet. And all it takes is a matter of faith. It's not a special prayer. It's not special words. It's the matter of the heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here today, wherever you are, and you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's a matter of a prayer. And if you pray and you mean it, God will come into your heart and he will save you right where you are. And it will be an eternal relationship that will never end. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray in your heart, in your mind, wherever you are. It doesn't take a preacher. This is between you and God. You pray this prayer in your heart and mind. And if you're sincere and you mean it, God will save your soul right where you're sitting. Repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for falling short in so many ways. I believe that you are who you say that you are. I believe that you died on the cross for the sins of the world, that you were buried, and on the third day you rose from the dead. I believe you sit at the right hand of God in heaven today, and you know my name. I'm asking you right now to come into my heart to forgive me of my sins, to pay the price for my sin debt and save my soul. Lord, I love you. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.